morning, everybody. No coffee. It's cold outside. What a Sunday. That's amen. Uh, thank you all for being here. Um, thanks especially for guests uh, who have come. Maybe this is a, a new experience for you. We really appreciate you coming, uh, just trying something new. Uh, just recently, I was down in Orlando, and I was a guest at a church. It was awkward. Uh, I don't know how else to say it. Just being in a new place, seeing new, new faces. Um, it's just kind of an interesting experience. So uh, we do have a gift for you if you sign a Connect card. Um, we'd appreciate it if you drop it in the basket just so we can get to know you. And we have a, a small gift um, on the Connect desk as you walk out this door. But it was actually so cold this morning, um, as I was leaving Clinton, the uh, stoplight or the stop sign um, that's blinking red, it was just like flickering. So, like, we live in a place where light bulbs can't even work um, when it's cold, so that's great. But uh, thank you all for being here so much. Uh, last week, Brandon, uh, Pastor Brandon, covered spiritual formation. Um, very good sermon, very important, something especially that our staff has been just digging into lately, seeing the importance of. Um, so today, as weird as it might be, uh, we're going to practice one as a body, because I believe formation happens um, as a body of believers, just as much as our individual um, individual bodies and like at home, we're going to practice one here. So today we're going to practice uh, just being silent before God. Maybe some of you have never done this, and it's kind of awkward at first, but we're going to try it today. So um, all you have to do is sit in your seat and be silent uh, and just contemplate God, think about God, and you can have your hands open, maybe on your lap, just in a, like a posture of receiving. You can bow your head and close your eyes. Um, and if you find your mind wandering, it's really okay. All you have to do is like say, here I am, Jesus. That's all you have to do. Um, so we're just going to be silent for a little bit here, maybe a minute, um, and just focus on God's presence in this place. So this time is yours to be silent before God. Father, we invite you into this place uh, to just be with us. Uh, Jesus, we invite you into this room um, to mold us and to shape us. And we ask you to send your spirit into us um, to be your temple. And we ask that whatever we do today, that it glorifies you and it makes us go out of this place with just a passion um, to, to, to recover uh, yourself in the world and to spread your word and light into the world. We love you, Jesus. Amen. All right, well, um, Kellen, if you could put up the photo that I have on, on the, the PowerPoint. It's not a PowerPoint. I don't know what it is. It's a program. Um, this is a Nutria. 
Pretty cool, huh? This is a, um, an animal that literally means a beaver rat. So that's what like the Greek means. And they may seem cute or not. I don't know if you like rats, but um, they have these big teeth. And what they do is they eat vegetation. That's all they do. So they completely wreak havoc on the environment that they're in. So they'll uh, be in a wetland, they'll be in a, a pond or whatever. They'll just decimate everything. Uh, someone in the early 1900s thought it was a great idea to just bring him in from South America. And it turns out it wasn't great. Uh, the problem isn't necessarily that they destroy the ecosystem, although that is a problem. They start moving inland when they're done with that. And then what do they eat? They eat all of our crops. They eat all of our corn and sugarcane and whatever we're trying to grow near the coast. Um, and, and that's a real problem, especially in America. Americans really don't like when you take our food away. So, uh, Kellen, if you could go to the next slide. This is a graph of the, of the population. You didn't know that you were getting a biology lesson and a statistics lesson in the same sermon. So, you're welcome. But this is, uh, in the state of California, they tracked the nutria population. So it goes from 50 at year zero, that's where they started, and it goes all the way up to over 200,000 in just five years. That's a pretty scary curve uh, uh, when you look at it. And as it turns out, the guy that brought them in didn't know this. Uh, nutria can bear offspring three times a year those poor mothers. So uh, this results in this phenomenon. It's called exponential growth. So it's where the curve goes a little bit, a little bit, and then suddenly it'll go uh, just haywire uh, off the charts. So some financial people, especially uh, those of you who follow Dave Ramsey out in the crowd today, um, you might know this as compounding interest. It's like you invest a dollar today and then you like let it sit in account and eventually it'll be like a billion dollars. I don't know. Don't check my math. But uh, basically, to put it in a different uh, way, if you took a single penny, doubled it every day for 30 days, you would have a, around $5.3 million dollars. That's the power of doubling. And the crazy thing about Nutria is 80% of the population dies after the first year. So like a, a one-year-old Nutria, there's only 20% left after that first year. So each individual really doesn't contribute all that much to the population, but it's the offspring that contributes to the population explosion. And this, I think, is a really good picture of multiplication. And this is how we're designed to build God's kingdom. So this morning, I really want to get into why Valley Church is doing what we're doing, this multiplication and sending pillar that we've been talking about for a long time here now. And I want to explain biblically why we're planting, why we're sending, why we're building groups here, and why we're pursuing this formation. So I'd like to invite our reader up today. I think it's Kathy out there. Um, so today's passage will be Revelation 19, 6 through 9. And yes, it's Revelation. Take a breath. We're, we'll get through it together. Uh, and I'd like to invite you to stand in honor of God's word if you're able. Revelation 19, 6 through 9. Starting in verse 6. Then I heard something like the vo voice of a vast multitude, like the sound of cascading waters, and like the rumbling of a loud thunder, saying, Hallelujah, because our Lord God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us be glad, rejoice, and give him glory, because the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has prepared herself. She was given fine linen to wear, bright and pure, 
for the fine linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. He also said to me, These words of God are true. Awesome, thank you. You guys can have a seat. Now, I know the common uh, belief that uh, just about this book, about Revelation, is that it's only about prophecy or it's only about apocalypse. Um, and it's only what is going to happen in the end time, which is kind of true, but it's not really like the core of what Revelation is about. Don't get me wrong, it's prophecy literature. That's the medium that it's portrayed in. Um, but the book, which is actually a letter, uh, is written to a specific people at a specific time. And you can read actually through Revelation, you can see the churches that this letter was addressed to. Uh, so the Apostle John what he's doing here is he's writing about Jesus. It's just like all of his other letters. It's just like his gospel and his three, three letters. They're about Jesus. He wants you to discover Jesus. So reading through Revelation, we discover who Jesus is and what his promises are. That's the big takeaway. So in this passage, we see this vast multitude of people. It's so loud, it's like a waterfall mixed somehow with thunder. It's kind of like when Matt and Nick are playing bass up here and you can like feel it in your soul and it just kind of like makes you happy. Um, that's what this was like. They could like feel it in their bones. Um, and they were just worshiping. That's what it was. They were wholly worshiping. And they were so overwhelmed that the long-awaited wedding day, this wedding banquet was finally here. They've been waiting on it forever. Um, and, and it's finally come. So in this passage, we can see uh, that Jesus is the groom. And of course, we are the bride. So we, as a church, and as a body, and as the united body of believers around the world, we're the bride. And this is a metaphor that the uh, ancient Israelites and the ancient Hebrews would have like well understood. There's a couple of uh, prophets that mention this. One is Isaiah 54, 5 through 7. Indeed, your husband is your maker. His name is the Lord of armies. And the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. He is called the God of the whole earth. For the Lord has called you, like a wife deserted and wounded in spirit, a wife of one's youth when she is rejected, says your God. I deserted you for a brief moment, but I will take you back with abundant compassion. Uh, similar language in Hosea 2, 19 through 20. I will take you to be my wife forever. I will take you to be my wife in righteousness, justice, love, and compassion. I will take you to be my wife in faithfulness, and you will know the Lord. So before this complete idea of Jesus was like revealed in the Old Testament, God is known as this God of compassion. He's promised compassion. He's pursued us. Even when the Israelites strayed, he chased them and chased them and wanted communion and to be with them. Uh, so marriage, this whole idea, I mean, it's relevant today, right? The bride, imagine this picture. The bride is getting ready in her room all day. She finally is ready. She starts walking down the aisle. She leaves her family. She leaves her mom and her dad to join the groom. And finally, she stands before the groom, unveils her face. She's beautiful. Everyone's watching. She commits herself in front of everyone she's invited uh, to this groom who has pursued her constantly. She doesn't want to take anyone else. 
She's standing on that stage in front of her groom to say, I'm with you forever. And this is how God describes his relationship with us. But the big problem, the rub, is that we're not a spotless bride. That's the whole issue. We've cheated, we've turned, we've tried to manipulate God at times, we've ignored God, who is our groom, and we've been uncommitted, and there's a bad problem that happens with that. Um, We are unfulfilled. So we're unfulfilled because we haven't worked within God's design. So if you look back, um, turn back with me at the creation account. So uh, Genesis 1, I'm going to read Genesis 1, verse 28. So this was after God created everything. He created humanity. This was the first charge he gave to humanity. Genesis 1, 28. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. So remember what God did at the very beginning? It says God created, God created the heavens and the earth. How did he do this? The Bible makes it clear that he created order from chaos. So if, if you remember, there was uh, uh, the vast, um, the, the watery depths. It was formless and empty. There was just darkness. And he created order. That's what he does. And now he commands us to do the same thing. He wants us to multiply and subdue. He wants us to make order from the chaotic, animalistic earth. And ultimately, he wanted us to spread Eden to the whole world. And the thing is, God worked alongside them. So Adam and Eve, God was there with them. He was walking with them. And he, was, he, he works alongside us during this because this Eden, this garden of perfection is where heaven and earth were the same. So for a time in our history, heaven was on earth and earth was in heaven. It was the same thing. God wanted the whole earth to be this way. He wanted heaven to be on the whole earth for us, for his prized creation. And he was walking with us. And he designed us to be like him. We are his image bearers. That's what it says. he, He created us in his image and we are his image bearers. Therefore, We have the same job as God. We are called to bring order. It's the same job. Uh, But the problem is, again, God's creation rebelled. Uh, Heaven isn't any longer on earth, at least that we necessarily have access to. And now connection with God, I'm sure you have all felt this, it's more difficult. Connection with God is difficult and it takes work now. Being fruitful and multiplying and bringing order, though, isn't just a command. It's baked into our DNA. That's what we strive to do. That's what our heart wants. And that's why we have to continue the same work today. And we are continuing the same work today. So fast forward a little bit um, from Genesis to Matthew. So Matthew 28, um, we did a whole series on, on just this passage because we think it's so important. But Matthew 28, 18 through 20, also known as the Great Commission. Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. And remember, I am with you always until the end of the age. So from this, we're called to make disciples. 
We're called to fill the earth again with followers of Jesus. We're ordered to subdue and bring order to our chaotic world that we all know so well because we're the image bearers of Christ. We believe here, especially at Valley Church, that everything in our lives and our church should be multiplied. Nothing we get should stop with us. I think we said that from the stage a lot, but I want to drive this point home. And that's a big reason we're using the group model. That's a big reason we brought in this group model to this place. Uh, not only does it aid in the formation that Brandon talked about last week, but it gives us a real-world chance to multiply and disciple. It gives us a real-world chance to multiply and disciple around a table with our peers. As groups grow, we will intentionally divide and we will intentionally multiply. And it might hurt at first, but it's okay because this is what we're commanded to do. We'll send out new leaders, we'll make more disciples, and that means we have to be investing in these potential leaders and we have to be sharing the load with everyone because we are a body of believers. Um, just one note on that share leadership. We do believe in share leadership here, um, and the staff of Valley Church wants to offer uh, a plan, a point A to point B plan, if you are feeling called to any kind of ministry, any kind of leadership, if you're feeling the tug on your heart to be sent somewhere or sent here and doing something, we want to come alongside you and invest in you, and the whole path, we want to we, we want to work with you and make it. So if that's you, please reach out to one of us and just ask about that plan. There are going to be so many opportunities to serve. We have a church plant coming up, Lord willing. We have uh, uh, missions. We have all kinds of places to serve just in this place. Um, so we really want you to come talk to us. Um, but this is how we multiply leaders. We invest in them. And we use the groups to multiply with this uh, uh, within the church. Uh, we, we didn't just come up with groups to fill time because uh, we were bored, or we didn't like bring them in because it's really trendy or anything. Uh, the, we, we made groups our main discipleship model because it gives us a chance to practice. It gives us a chance to make multiplication and sending a habit, not just a thing we think about. It's practically following Jesus, and it has to become our default. Uh, just to be honest this morning, we, I, don't, I don't see how we can plant a church and send out a missionary if we can't get internally our own people to multiply and send. I don't think it'll happen. I don't know how if we can't get it, to done, if we can't get it done internally, I don't know how we're supposed to send externally a church plant and missionaries. I really love friendships. I do. I think long-term friendships are needed. I have a lot of long-term friends. I love feeling comfortable I think long-term comfort is needed so we're not constantly stressed out. But we can't keep prioritizing these above the command of Jesus, which is to multiply and subdue. We can't keep building up our own friendships at the cost of discipleship because it's not, it, it's not in our DNA. It would be unfulfilling. And there are many ways to do groups. Don't get me wrong. No, no two are going to look the same at all. But this is the model that Valley Church has chosen. And I hope you're excited about it. And I hope you join us and, and come alongside us in that. Because I have experienced firsthand, it really does, just being in community constantly around a table, it does transform people. 
Um, the church as a whole, additionally, is multiplying and sending as well. We're sending a church plant. We've been talking about this a lot. And Lord willing, uh, Clinton will be used as a fulfillment of the Great Commission. And again, it's not because it's convenient at this time. It's not because we have enough money finally. It's because we're multiplying everything that God has given us, no matter how big or small. We're also sending a missionary into the field. That's another one of our goals for multiplication and sending. And Lord willing, that will uh, fulfill the Great Commission. And it's not because we want to do something neat. It's not because we want to do something cool that looks good. It's because it's a command. And will it be perfect? Absolutely not, Uh, especially if I'm involved. I can tell you it's not going to be perfect. But I want to emphasize that these uh, goals, this church planning and sending a missionary, it's not the finish line. It's just the launch pad of God's goodness. And we're not going to stop there. Because that's not multiplying. We can't stop when we do those things. Um, Church, this is just the beginning. I know God has exponential growth planned, not just in this place, but for the church nationwide and worldwide. And that might sound like an arrogant statement. You might be saying, how do you know? Because I just read Revelation. Because we know the end of the story. So come back to me uh, to Revelation 19, uh, verse 6. Remember what it says. Then I heard something like the voice of a vast multitude, like the sound of cascading waters, and like the rumbling of loud thunder, saying, Hallelujah, because our Lord God, the Almighty, reigns. Just a little bit earlier in Revelation 7, 9, uh, this is what is written. After this I looked... And there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. So just reading these two verses, I don't know how there's supposed to be a vast multitude of people. I don't know how there's supposed to be every nation or every crowd, a huge crowd, every tongue, if we don't do the work that's prescribed to us. John sees this in his prophecy in the end times. The great commission charge in Matthew 28, it, wor- it, it ended up, it worked. The, the, the charge worked. Followers of Jesus were faithful through the years, and you just read through the book of Acts. Every other chapter, there's they multiplied, more gathered, et cetera, et cetera. They subdued the earth, and they brought order to the chaos. So lately, I've been talking to other church planners um, because I realize I'm not the smartest person on the planet. And uh, I talked to a guy in Indianapolis and I talked to a guy in Orlando, two completely separate places, um, definitely different than Terre Haute and Clinton. Uh, But with no prior conversation, they explained their model to me. And boy, did it sound a lot like exactly what we're doing here. They are going out to their local community where they live, They're commissioned by their elders and their leadership at their sending church to go. Um, Their goal is to be autonomous after a while, to uh, facilitate planting themselves. And I just saw their eyes light up when they were talking about it. They were so excited to get ready and to just be sent out and to plant and multiply. I think the Holy Spirit is convicting churches around the world and around the U.S. in the same exact way as it has Valley Church. So that was just very uh, like edifying to me because we aren't operating in a vacuum. Other churches are moving in the same direction. Other bodies of believers are moving in the same direction that we are. So that gives our church a choice. We can either sit on the sidelines or we can join God in what he's doing. 
Either way, God is going to win. We see that. God will prevail, whether we join or not. So just imagine if everyone in this room discipled two people in their lives, and then those disciples discipled two people, exponential growth would be for the sole cause of Jesus if we just did these things in our lives. That's why I think it's so important that we have to continue thinking about these things. We have to keep talking about them. We have to keep contemplating them. We have to keep thinking about discipling and reminding ourselves and chasing God because it's so easy to put it out of your mind. It's so easy after baptism, after that spiritual high, we let off the gas and we just coast for the rest of our lives. But really, that baptism has to be our launching point. It's like our church plant sending missionaries. It's our launch pad. We're so worried about this concept of justification by grace alone, that he's done the work already. It's something you hear all the time, which don't send me any emails about being heretical. I believe in both of those things wholeheartedly. Really, I do. Uh, And I am very thankful that we can't do anything to earn grace. But what we forget as a church, especially in the West, especially in America, is we forget to chase being in communion with our Creator. We completely forget to continually chase him. We forget that following Jesus isn't just a concept, but it's a dedication and it's a way of life. And I really think it makes Jesus' death on the cross pointless when we forget these things. Um, This is in the book of James, James 1.25. This is what it says. But the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom and perseveres in it is not just a forgetful hearer, but a doer who works. This person will be blessed in what he does. So we are called to work. That's what we're called to. We're called to spiritual formation, and we're called to be sent. But I want to be clear that being sent is not a future tense word, right? We think, oh, we'll be, we'll be sent later, because multiplication and sending is a mindset, So we usually think of sent as either I've been sent in the past or I will be sent in the future. We're kind of in this weird like middle ground of what does God want for my life or did I do too much or did I do too little or am I waiting for this thing? But the thing is that sent in our context is a present tense verb. It's right now. God has sent you where your feet are. God has sent you where you are right now, right in this time, in this place. He sent you into your job. He sent you to your family. He sent you to the gas station. He sent you to your church. He sent you to the library. He sent you to your kids. You're a missionary wherever you're present. It's not this lofty spiritual goal reserved for this person that wants to sell all their stuff and go to another country. It's something that we're all commanded to do. And that's why we as a church exist. That's why we exist in our local community, and that's why we exist in foreign nations. And the church is an extension of God, also known as his bride. And again, I want to reiterate, we're not perfect. 2 Corinthians 11, 2 through 3, this is what it says. For I am jealous uh, for you with a godly jealousy, because I have promised you in marriage to one husband, to present a pure virgin to Christ. But I fear that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your minds may be seduced from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. But even though that happens to us, just like the Israelites, God pursues us anyway. Now, I understand that not everyone in this room is feeling the same call. You might not feel called to be a missionary. 
you might not be, uh, you, you might not feel the authority, you might be apprehensive, you might be timid or scared, and I'm here to say this morning that that's okay. That's part of our spiritual formation, that's part of our growth, getting closer to Christ. But as a community, we have to build each other up in this. We're all created in the image of the one true God. So if this is you, just let me close with this story. If you're feeling like you're not sent, if you're feeling like you're not a missionary. Um, Kellen, if you could go to this next slide. This handsome young fella is uh, William Borden. That's his name. That's a crazy name to me. But uh, so William was born in 1887 to millionaires. Uh, very, very wealthy, especially at that time, which being a millionaire at that time was um, huge, right? So his parents took him around the world one time on vacation. They just went on a massive vacation to a bunch of different countries, and this sparked his love and dedication to the missions field when he was a small child. So in 1905, uh, he started at Yale, and everyone loved him. This guy, like, he was the classic popular kid in high school. Everyone seemed to love him. Um, and in fact, one person that was traveling to America from, from UK, from uh, Great Britain, um, they asked him what his favorite part of America was. And this is what he said. The sight of that young millionaire, Borden, kneeling with his arm around a bum at the Yale Hope Mission. That was his favorite thing about America was this guy. Uh, one of his professors said this about Borden, his judgment was so unerring and so mature that I always forgot there was such a difference in our ages. His complete consecration and devotion to Christ were a revelation to me, and his confidence in prayer a continual inspiration. Uh, so eventually, William became uh, in charge of the National Bible Institute in New York. He became the director of Moody at 22. If that doesn't make you feel bad, I don't know what will. Uh, he was obviously on the right track. And his whole thing, his whole training was uh, to reach Muslims in China. That was his whole goal. So at age 25, he went. His goal, again, was China. And what he did first was he went to Egypt so he could learn the, the Muslim culture. He could learn Arabic better to, to better reach these people. And he set sail. After four months, after he set sail, uh, he died. So he contracted spinal meningitis and died. He never made it to where he was sent. So here's the kicker about Borden's life. Um, at Yale... Borden started a prayer and a Bible meeting, and he started with 150 people, and at the end of his senior year, he had 1,000 out of the 1,300 people that attended Yale, attending his Bible study. Rather than going out to the college party, uh, William was known to evangelize uh, in the pubs and on the streets uh, on the weekend with the locals. And although he was a millionaire, most people didn't know, his friends say he was equally generous with his faith and his money. Uh, he's even quoted as saying, like, entering normal society had no appeal to him. So William understood that God sent him where he was at all times. So imagine if William waited. Imagine if he waited to be sent. Imagine the impact. We sure wouldn't be talking about him today. And that's because William had the mindset. So after his death, this is, what, this is how the story goes. Um, his mom went to Cairo, Egypt, and he, she found um, Borden's Bible. 
and there were three phrases that he wrote in the back of his Bible. No reserve, no retreat, and no regrets. That's how he lived his life. So church, I think it's time to decide now in this time if our groom is worth it. We have to decide if our groom is worthy. Ephesians 5:27 says he, Jesus, did this to present himself uh, to, to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. Christ sacrificed himself for his church to make her holy, to present herself to him. So we have to decide, is Jesus worthy? Is he worthy not just of our time, of our emotions, of our money, our possessions, but is he worthy of our entire life? I think, church, that it's time to gather as a body, gather as the bride of Christ, and it's time to prepare so we can be presented blameless and holy to our groom. It's time to multiply and send and grow and evangelize. It's time to tell people about this Jesus that changed our lives, or that we claim changed our lives, and be presented to him. So it's time to do this thing called forsaking all others, just like a bride. We leave the world that we're so hard to cling to, and we commit to Jesus forever. So I just have one question that I want you guys to wrestle with, and it's on the response slide that I have up here. Um, so take some time with the Lord. Uh, just sit in his presence and wrestle with him um, this morning, and this time is yours.